Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 118 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author and PR consultant and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success strategies for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Now, just quickly, before we jump into the main part of the show, I wanted to let you know about my online PR course and group coaching program, Vegans in the Limelight. Now, this is a 12-month online program where you have video training that teaches you everything you need to know about how to do your own PR. You can ask questions on the platform and you can also post your proposed pitches and media releases before sending them to journalists to get my feedback. You also get to jump on a monthly live group call where you can ask whatever questions you want about your business and you can get tailored help from me on anything to do with raising the profile of your brand. So it might be that I look at your website and give you some feedback or how to improve your LinkedIn profile and other marketing and PR topics. So if you'd like to find out more about that, just hop on over to veganbusinessmedia.com and you'll see a link there for Vegans in the Limelight. And now on to the main part of the show. In this episode, I'm sharing a recording of a panel discussion I hosted last year at the 2018 Vegan Festival in Adelaide, Australia, called The Future of Plant-Based Business. My guests on the panel were Seth Tibbet, founder of iconic American vegan meat brand Tofurky, which is sold internationally, and Kale Druin, a plant-based consultant in Brisbane, Australia, who works with food retailers and distributors. Among the topics we discussed are what's driving the take-up of vegan and plant-based living, what plant-based products are currently hot right now, what to be aware of when dealing with large supermarket chains, strategies for getting your products into retailers, how clean meat will compete against plant-based meat, pushback from animal agriculture industries in banning terms such as meat and milk on products unless they come from animals, what's happening in non-food related vegan business sectors and the opportunities this provides, and much more. Here's the panel discussion, the future of plant-based business. I mentioned how the growth of the vegan and the plant-based sector is massive, particularly in the vegan meat sector and the plant-based meat sector. So I'd love to ask both of you just briefly, what are your thoughts on what's driving this uptake? Uh, so, yeah, it is a, a massive growth that's happening right now, and not just in the US, but worldwide. But just to give you an example, of what we're seeing right now in the U.S. like So as Katrina was saying, um, I've been in business since 1980, which means, um, who was alive in 1980 in here though? A couple of people, okay, good, old people, welcome. Uh, but um, I've seen uptimes, downtimes, you know, the whole thing. Um, it's not like growth is just like this and anything. So, but I've never seen anything like the last two years. In the supermarkets in the US, supermarkets grow at, if they grow at 2%, they are thrilled. 
with that growth. So if they see something like five years ago, this category was growing at like 4%. And so they're like, wow, this is amazing. We've got to get more plant-based stuff in there because this is half, you know, twice as fast as we're growing and everything else. So that was great. And then for the next two years, it was also three to 5%, which doesn't sound like a lot to us, but it's a great deal in the supermarkets. The last two years have been in refrigerated meat alternatives, U.S. supermarkets, 20 to 45% growth. So this is amazing growth to see, and these guys don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to deal with it. We're just trying to keep up. All of us in the uh, plant-based sector are trying to just make enough product to feed this demand that's happening right now. And, you know, what we say in our marketing is taste is king, value is queen, everything else is marketing. There's all these great reasons to eat vegan, which we've talked about here, you know, from health, health of the planet, health of animals. But really, when it comes down to the end of the day, it's got to taste good or it's not going to sell. And I think what's really driving the growth is that the improvement is so massive in taste and texture. Because the first meat alternatives, they didn't, you know, it's like if you were a vegan, you know, you're just happy to find something to eat. And it was, you had sort of like poetic license. Like people would just go, this is great, like give me more. But, you know, now we're dealing with this flexitarian market, like in the U.S., about 20% uh, of the public eats half of their meals meatless every week. These guys, you know, they're not vegan, so they're free yes. to eat anything, so it's gotta taste really good, and the texture, which is harder to get down than the taste. Taste is hard, texture's doubly hard, because it's how it goes through the equipment and everything, and you make this stuff in the lab, and it's like one pound, and it's like great, you take it out to these big machines, you try and make a thousand pound batch, and it's just like, oh my God, what are we doing? So anyways, I say it's taste and texture is getting so good that it's just driving people crazy. And that's what's going on. Yeah, I love that. It'd be interesting to see what Kale says about the Australian market, but I know about what Seth said about when we're vegan, we're just grateful. But 21 years ago, the vegan cheeses were hideous. They tasted like rubber. So you know, I said that in my talk earlier. So I think it's, you're, you're right, you're the texture, the taste, it, it's all really improved. Kale, from an Australian perspective, what are your thoughts on what's driving the, exactly the growth? The exactly the same thing. Um, the taste and texture has improved so much that people are chasing it now. I'm, when I first started distributing tofurkey in Australia, um, I was driving around the van begging IGAs to take on the product, and now it's just a totally different market. We go into supermarkets and they're begging us for the products. Um, so that's that's the massive change that's happening here. Seth stole most of my stuff there, so... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, it's, but it's definitely the texture. The texture you, you did bring up cheese, and I want to say that the first cheeses, I want to echo what you said, like they were so bad. Like in the 1990s, that was the first real cheese, the 80s and 90s, you know, that I saw cheese. Like in America, we had this joke, and it was like, did you hear about the fire in the cheese, the vegan cheese factory? The cheese still didn't melt. It was like perfect the next day. You know, a big pallet of cheese, like fire. And that was pretty much true. I mean, they didn't melt at all. But, um, you know, that's a short length of time. Animal-based cheeses have been made in this country, in this world, for 5,000 years, and I'm sure the first ones weren't great either. I mean, 
let's give it 50 years or something and it'll be like amazing. But right now, you know, vegan cheese is a really, really, it's a jet stream out there in that category. Is well, actually, that leads into my next question is like, is what plant-based products are currently hot right now? And obviously, plant-based oh, yeah. uh, dairy alternatives are seeing massive growth. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing? Because I know you, your investor, as well as being the founder of Tepurki, you also invest in at least one vegan cheese brand. Can you talk a little bit about that, Seth? Well, yeah, Miyoko's um, cheese is this great cheese. I think it's the best cheese in the U.S. certainly, and um, I'm a, one of the investors in that. They used to be, they were our first competitor actually with Tofurky. She, uh, Miyoko brought out the Unturkey, and then, so we, but now we're on the same team and it's great, but, um, you know, that's uh, a really, really, like the cheese, it's almost like there's two kinds of cheese. You have to either have stuff that'll go on a cracker cold, or you have to get the shredded kind that'll melt in a toasty or a cheese sandwich. And yet, you know, if you look at animal-based cheese, there's cheeses that'll do both. So I think that's sort of the holy grail that I see is one cheese that'll you can slice, you can put on a cracker, or you can also take it and make a nice melted sandwich with it. So I think that is still to come. I also think having an aged sharp cheese, you know, a lot of the cheese you have now, it's like cheddar, but it's a mild cheddar. Getting that sharp note, like a white Vermont cheddar is what it would be in the U.S. I don't know what it is over here, but yeah. Yeah, that's um, good. Yeah. you say that about cheese. Totally. Yeah, exactly the same thing. Um, the other thing that I think might be coming to the market in a big way over the next little while is cured meats. It's something that hasn't... Cured meats. Cured meats, um, vegan cured meats. Hasn't been something that's been done very much yet. And I think there's a big potential for that. And you're also involved with some, uh, is it funky fields? Like there's the vegan steak, I think, in the UK, the beer or something, and the mints that funky fields are doing. So these are kind of fairly new. So the mints has just been recently launched into, um, into Woolworths. Most people would probably know about that. Um, that was the first time that a product like that has gone into the meat section um, in the supermarket chain, which is pretty revolutionary um, for Australia at least. And um, the sales numbers that we've seen there have been absolutely staggering. Um, to give you an example, um, Meat Mints um, currently sells in Australia at about 100 units per store per day. Um, we're getting closer to that. Um, so it's selling at about 30 units per store per week, so we've got a long way to go. But we're, we're sort of starting to chip away with it. The average in the um, vegetarian section is currently four units per store per week. So by going into the meat section has made a big difference to the way that that's sold. So I know there's been a lot of controversy around that and people getting very upset around that, but what's happened by that being in the meat section is it's meant that more people see it and that more people come in contact with something that wouldn't, they wouldn't have normally seen. And it's made a massive difference to the way that that's sold and it's making a difference to the way people eat. Yeah, absolutely. I read an article for Forbes on just that, should vegan products be stocked in the meat aisle? And it is, it's a very, the, the vegans don't want it. And a lot of us as vegans want to, you know, walk past all the blood and what have you, but it's not about us. You know, it, it's about if people who would otherwise buy regular animal-based meat go, hang on a minute, I might buy this. And I think, and Seth can probably talk to us as well, Beyond Meat um, in the US, which is one of the bleeding burger, plant-based burger companies, um, they, you know, had great success and they actually insist on, they won't even, apparently, now I spoke to Ethan Brown, the founder, and he said they won't 
don't actually now go into stores unless they get stopped in the meat department. Um, and they actually outsold, I think in their California division, he told me, it's in the article, I can't remember the exact figure, but they actually outsold over a certain period, even products like Angus beef, they actually outsold. So I think that's really important to let that sit, that vegan burgers are, are starting to outsell the meat-based um, items. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Or did you have something to well, add? Sorry, just, just around the coffee fields, but the process of getting that product into the meat section was very complicated as well, and it was very, um, we were pitching to butchers um, when we were putting that product in there, and we had people walk out of meetings, storm out of meetings, saying this shit doesn't belong here, um, things like that, and what had happened by the end of the process, though, is all these people that had, were naysayers in this product really came on board, and it really changed the way that the, um, way that the supermarkets started thinking about these type of products for the future. What made them come on board? Sales. <laughs> it's what talks. It's what talks in the end. But we we cooked the product up. They loved the product. It wasn't. It had to be a good product as well. But it was really the sales. The sales blew the supermarkets away. And as far as you know, and I know it's probably anecdotal. Do you think the majority of those sales were from what Seth uh, referred to as flexitarians, Absolutely. as opposed to vegans? Yeah. And but from a vegan perspective, um, when those products get ranged in the meat section, there'll be more and more of them being ranged in the meat section over the next little while. Sacrifice. Walk past a meat, piece of meat and buy them. Don't um, put any social media posts up saying that this is, this is horrible and all this sort of stuff doesn't help this cause. It really doesn't. Um, the more we can be positive in social media when it comes to this sort of stuff, the more we can achieve. It's true. It's like when I go, because they used to say they sell like in Coles, they sell the bio cheese. And I know sometimes when I'm standing there in the shop and I'm thinking, I'm looking at the cheese part and I'm thinking, I hope nobody thinks I've suddenly not gone vegan. I almost feel like, you know, putting a notice up on me saying, I'm vegan, I'm looking for vegan cheese. But yeah, we do need to do exactly that. Seth, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, no, it's great to see. I love to see innovation, you know, in the category. It's so important. And we, we want all vegan businesses to succeed, you know, and we want them to succeed for two reasons. One is altruistically, we want a vegan world. And the other thing, though, is it's just a business decision, too. When there is a hot new product like the Beyond Meat that comes into the marketplace, it's the tide that floats all boats. It really is. It's much easier for us to go in and place our products in a that's hot and happening than one that's really de decreasing because we've gone in. It's a very hard sale to go into these buyers and say, the reason your category is declining is because you don't have tofurkey. When we go into a category that's growing, it's like, yeah, heck yeah, you know, this is growing great guns, we'll take a shot on that. So it's really important for all, um, even large and small, like we don't look at it as com competition, really. There's so much market, like, Maybe 20 years ago, when the market was smaller, there was sort of a sense of, oh, if you take this, you won't take that brand. But now, it's so big, and there's so much opportunity and so much demand that it really helps to have all sorts of different companies and brands that are succeeding in the product. And to that end, you know, we have, in the U.S., we have now a plant-based foods association, which is 115 companies now where we can talk to Congress that's making laws, we can talk to stores, we get media out of that. It's a great thing.
uh, one of the vegan products on special, don't buy it. Like, or if you do buy it, obviously it's good for you. It's actually not good for them because it means their margins are kind of even less. So can you just talk a little bit about perhaps the, the dark side of uh, the... That, that. So that, goes, that goes both ways, that one. Um, it's important to still buy those products when they're on special. Um, they, you're right, the company is paying for those specials. <laughs> Coles and Woolworths don't give away any margin at all when it comes to specials. They just, it's all passed back to the manufacturer. But they also have an obligation to do well during those specials. So if the sales are bad during those specials, it can affect their overall range within the, within the, within the um, supermarket. Um, when it comes to margins, yes, it's brutal. Um, the, the initial process when you're ranging a product into Coles and Woolworths um, is a taste and excitement sort of process where the, where the buyer is really interested in these products getting into the shelf, um, especially now. Um, they're so excited about plant-based brands getting on the shelf that the first meetings are usually fairly easy now. They used to be harder, but they're fairly easy now. But then the next step is a completely blind process where it's just about margin. It's just about whether this product is going to bring in more money for the supermarket chain than another another competing product. So we're not quite, although we are expanding quickly, the big the there is still a one-in-one-out strategy when it comes to a lot of vegan products and plant-based products in Australia. Do they have to pay for shelf space? Because I know in the US, something you have to pay for a certain shelf space. Do you have to pay for it in the same way here in Australia? You're not allowed to do that. There was, um, in Australia, I might be wrong on this one, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that Woolworths and Coles got fined recently for doing that sort of thing. Um, so what they've done as a different structure is it's marketing. You're paying for a marketing package to promote the product, and they can be very, very expensive. You know, I've seen it go the other way, though, like, and I don't know, you know, Australia as much as I know the U.S. and even in the U.K., but we've had situations where when they're making that calculation of how much money it's going to bring in, what they're looking for a lot of times is they're looking to bring you guys into the store as a shopper instead of shopping at a competitor, you know, if they, if they want to go to... If you have a better plant-based set than somebody else, then you're going to go to that store. You're an important shopper because they want your dollars because you're going to buy lettuce. It's almost like they'll look at this sometimes as not a loss leader, but they'll take less margin. Like we got into the Sainsbury stores in the UK, and we had this brutal fight with the you know manager about like what is the price going to be, and they told us. In order to get this price of 250 pounds for this product for the deli slices, you have to sell it this. And we said, well, we just can't, but we can sell you at this and it's higher. So we started doing business, and lo and behold, it came out on the shelf at 250. So they cut their margin because they were on, you know, notice from their management. Hey, Tesco has got this hot brand of vegan products in here. We need a hot brand of vegan products, so we want that shopper. So. It's not as clear cut, and maybe Australia is more money mad. You guys yeah. like money more than the U.S. I don't think anybody like money more than the U.S. or the U.K. But maybe you guys do. In Australia, every department is isolated, so they don't think about the overall business in any clear way. Like they don't think about how much more money that customer is going to bring into the bring into the business. They think about exactly what that shelf space is going to achieve achieve for them. The one difference, though. Another reason why you should support products that go into the meat section, completely different margin structure within the meat section. Um, no marketing stress budget, and 
and the margins are about half of what they are in the other parts. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Is that the same in the US? Not interesting. Yeah. You know that's that's true. But again, it, it, it's all about the power of the brand too. Like if you have a unique product, like not just one that's like I'm doing a better job than. Tofurky, for instance, <laughs> it's like this. But if you have something creative, like right now, I think um, vegan seafood, really big, up and coming. It's a category that's not really developed. But if you say invented a great vegan prawn or a salmon, like salmon, very difficult for people to knock off. But if you created something that no one else had, you have a lot of power in that negotiation and bringing that into the store. So I think being creative and having some of the wackiest ideas or some of the best ideas, you know, and some of the ones that everybody goes, that's a good idea. Like nobody thought Tofurky was a good idea. Like I had to fight for that name, you know, and then it was just like, we're gonna do this. And, um, you know, it worked out because it was unique and it was a unique product. So really being creative and unique and finding a niche that's not being served is just really, I think, crucial. Niche, and niche as we say in Australia. <laughs> oh, man. Correction. Um, Discussion at 24 hour time as well. Yeah, I got a lot of problems with Australian culture. Sorry. <laughs> The riches are in the niches, so it kind of works with that. But anyway, that's right. Seth is so right. Yeah. But, but having a, a creative idea, and I, you know, is is just critical. Something new, something different, because those guys are looking for innovation you, and something truly innovative. You're much more likely to get into a sort of battle around margin and uh, marketing budget if you're trying to replace another product that's close to the same. They're, they're almost certainly going to go for your product if you give them more margin and more money. But if you can't do that, they won't go for that product. Nice. Now I want to talk a little bit about own range because we've seen in the UK, for example, Tesco actually hired a head of plant-based innovation, it was Derek Sarno, the chef, to actually create their own in-house range. Coles I've seen, I saw recently, have got their own like Coles vegan, I don't know what it was, or a Sammy or something. What are your thoughts on that? Because I've heard that, like for example, sometimes what seems to happen, and I'm, just as a consumer I've seen this happen, you're going to say one of the big majors and you'll say, oh lovely, I'll get this product like Tofurky, whatever it is and it's there for a while, and then all of a sudden it disappears, and suddenly there's the, a cheaper, and not as good quality version of the, the retailer's own uh, brand. So what are your thoughts on what's likely to happen with um, the big retailers, in particular bringing out their own plant-based brands? How is that going to affect um, other vegan brands? Well, once again, um, you know what, you as a manufacturer, you've got to, be open to whatever works and what can sell the best and you know um, it sort of depends on your production capacity if you have your if your brand is like at full capacity in your plant then you don't want to look at doing sort of like co-packing for anybody and, and other own ring print but um, if you have a plant and you know you need to fill it up that's when you look at like okay sure we'll, produce Cole's meat alternative and if it sells that's fine but we've done well um, we so what you're saying there is that, that you can benefit uh, the vegan brands can benefit by making the yes for the retailer oh, the manufacturer right. you have to be open to you know whatever works we've just 
always been promoting our brand the most. And we had the situation in the UK now where um, a year ago we developed a line of vegan sandwiches because the UK invented this word vegan in 1944 and they invented sandwiches. So we developed these sandwiches in the exact same wedge uh, package that all these other guys have and we put a Tofurky brand on it and because we were thinking like Sainsbury and Tesco they always have their own brand that's all they have but as a vegan brand they wanted something to stand out and say this isn't meat this is vegan and we had the name in vegan so now they're taking our brand into their stores um, successfully so again um, as a vegan company you sometimes have more clout than you think because they want to see it differently. Um, so, in that same situation where what you're sort of getting at, I think, is that um, if Coles and Woolworths contract someone else to manufacture a product that's similar and, and get and, and, and knocks off the other one, I think they managed to make a good one. Power to them. If they're not, um, it's up to the customers to demand quality and to not put up with um, sort of these cheap knockoffs happening um, that are poor quality and and. From my perspective, we could be the first person, a vegan coming or someone coming in to buy that product for the first time, and if it's a bad quality product, it can affect their whole decision to become, to eat less meat or eat less dairy. So it's just so important that we have quality products on the shelf. So quality is key. Got it, got it. Let's talk a little bit now about, because it's all very exciting, all these developments, but we're starting to see some real pushback from the animal agriculture industry. For example, in France, they've banned the use of the word meat, unless it's a product that comes from an animal. They've done the same thing recently in Missouri, and I know Seth's gonna talk about this because uh, uh, you're part of the, one of the group of people leading a lawsuit against that, challenging it. And I think there are even moves by the FDA in the US uh, around the use of the term milk, or uh, uh, use of uh, cheese or uh, milk to describe anything that's not dairy. So it's an interesting uh, thing. You know, in in one way, it's kind of like kind of exciting because they must feel really threatened in order to do that. But on the other hand, uh, you know, it can be quite difficult to suddenly tell these plant-based brands you can't call tofurkey burgers or tofurkey sausages. So, Seth, do you want to kick off a little bit about your thoughts on that? Whether the lawsuit that you're involved in is likely to succeed, and where do you see all this kind of going? <coughs> Yeah, so the first um, win that we got of this was in milk in the U.S. because milk is the hero of plant-based foods right now. Plant-based milks in the U.S. are 13% of all milk sales at retail, which is phenomenal. All the other categories, including plant-based meats and all of these plant-based cheeses, Everything else is less than 1% because there's just so much meat out there. Like we're growing at 45%, that's great. We're like killing it. But still, plant-based milks, by 2020, that's going to be 20% of milk. Like dairy's new motto in the U.S. is it's, we've been down so long it looks like up to us. It's like they've been falling off a cliff 25% down since 1990 in milk, uh, animal-based milk. So... That's when the you know they've been crying for protection and they're trying to use in the term milk. There's this famous quote by the FDA: "An almond doesn't lactate," so we got we can't do that. Like that's the big thing. And Stephen Colbert, the big comedian, promptly took that and said, "The first person that can put 
an almond doesn't lactate into their wedding vows gets a free trip to New York City. And so the next day, it was like two days later, this guy is reading his you know, wedding vows, and he said, oh, by the way, an almond doesn't lactate. <laughs> you got to go to New York and have the VIP tour. But, uh, and then it's so, it's expanded to plant-based meats now in the U.S. where the state of Missouri, which is a nice little bogan state in the middle of the... Oh, look at that. He's using his Because I blew it on niche, so. Uh, but uh, Missouri decided that Missouri cattlemen got their uh, legislators and they said, in the state of Missouri, you can't call anything meat and unless it's from a harvested animal, not a slaughtered animal, but harvested. Like, we can't use their word, but they can use our word. Harvest is our word, that's what you do to plants. So these guys, they it's this terrible law, it's poorly written, you can't understand it, but the deal, the long and the short of it is, if you're found by one of the 114 attorney generals of one of the 114 counties in Missouri to be non-compliant, you can get assessed a $1,000 fine, and then here's the good part, one year in jail for having a product label that's not compliant. And so we said, uh, well, we'll take that on, and so we're suing the state of Missouri, which is like awesome, because you don't get to sue a state that often. But um, we wanted to do it because we didn't want other states are watching this, and you know we didn't want it to snowball. So, um, we're, what do you think the chances are of winning that, sir? I think that they're fairly good. You know, I'm talking. We have the ACLU and the Animal Legal Defense Firm helping us in the lawsuit. But what I think will happen is, even if we win, you know, the empire will strike back and they'll go, "Why did we lose this?" And they'll bring it up again, either in Missouri or another state. So it's going to be a long-term fight. But um, you know, as Philip. Wolin said, it's like, first they ignore you, hey, we've been ignored, then they laugh at you, we make tofurkey, come on, we've had laughs. And then they fight you and then you win, so it is a sign of we're one step from winning, but it's going to be a big legal battle from here on out. It's interesting to see what the consumer reaction is, because certainly from the reaction I've seen, even from people who are not yet vegan, or pre-vegans as I like to call them, even they think this is ridiculous, you know what I mean, they, like, they know that whether they're buying cow milk or whether they're buying you know, plant-based health. So it'd be interesting. Have you, do, have you had any feedback around sort of consumer reaction? No, I think that's correct. You know, that it's really seen as a shallow protectionist law for just the shallow interest of the meat companies. And it's funny because there's other meat companies are divided. The, the smart ones like Tyson and Maple Leaf Foods are like buying interest. They're saying, we're in the protein business. Protein is protein. If there's a market out there, we want to be a part of it, you know, so they're going into it. And then there's the other ones, these Missouri cattlemen, that are just doing, we've got to crush this rebellion of an idea whose time has come, and we've got to do that. And I just don't think their chances are good that they're going to crush this. So I think the other ones will succeed, and then when you look at history, it's going to be a bad day for those guys. Taylor, what are your thoughts on the potential for that kind of thing happening here in Australia? Is it, are we not quite there yet, or is it, I mean, what are your thoughts? Sure. I think, yeah, I think it's undoubtable that it'll happen. There'll be the fight back from the, the meat lobby in Australia. The, that's, yeah, my knowledge of that is pretty limited, so I'm too much of that one, but yeah, I think it'll happen. 
So we talked a little bit about, we're going to open up to questions very, uh, very shortly, but we talked a little bit about um, what are the kind of hot areas at the moment. So there might, say, there might be people here looking to go into and start their own businesses. So we talked about vegan meat and particularly vegan dairy products are, are good to, to start up. But I also, I get contacted a lot by people wanting to invest in vegan and plant-based businesses. So what are your thoughts, both of you, on what are the sort of opportunities um, for people who want to invest in plant-based businesses? Manufacturing. Manufacturing is the place to invest. Um, if um, people, are you talking about people wanting to put money into different businesses? Yeah. yeah. Find good products and um, invest in that. I think that um, <clears throat> Beyond Meat is putting out an IPO now, so they're going uh, public. So there's a place if you wanted to get into buying U.S. stock. Uh, I don't know what there is over here like that. I don't think there is a, like I think in the U.S., I think it's the first even might have been the first global meat company right. to actually uh, be put out as an IPO. I could be wrong, but I think so. Certainly nothing like that here yeah. as far as I'm aware. But, but still, there's you know small companies, and as Kale said, like manufacturers that are growing. You know, when you're growing, you need capital, and they are probably open to selling stock or a share of the company in some fashion and some of them are doing equity crowdfunding which is uh, quite an, an interesting thing like i think it's a new thing in the u.s where it's not your regular crowdfunding but like whereas typically in the u.s and you probably know more on this bit you have to be an accredited investor to invest in a brand but now the sec changed their regulations to allow equity crowdfunding so you can invest a minimum of a uh, hundred u.s dollars in exchange for equity of the company so i'm representing a company that's uh, launching what they're calling the vegan for amazon they're called billion vegans and they're doing equity crowdfunding campaign they've already raised some private equity um, and, I think, and i think as well perhaps around vegan fashion um, i think that's started to come up with these new developments in biofabrication i touched on that in my uh, talk about the vegan leathers made from mushroom from pinatex and silk cruelty free silk and all these kind of really quite high tech uh, cool things. I think we're probably going to see, I know you two are mainly um, food based, but I think we're going to see uh, quite a sort of explosion in vegan both fashion and also vegan beauty. Any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and probably the biggest investment you can do is, is just buying the products. Buying the products when they're on the shelves everywhere. Um, especially when a product manages to get into the supermarkets, go out there and buy it. That's going to put enough. That's going to put the most of that money back to those companies. All right, I think we'll open it out. Um, to, so, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah. Um, we'd like to uh, open it up to a Q and A. Can we have one of the volunteers um, just to uh, have the roving mic? Who would like to ask a question? We've got two amazing people here, so take advantage. There was someone at the back, and then they say, "Can we just see the person?" I just want to do it in the order of the hands, and then we'll come to you as well. Lovely. Three amazing. <laughs> Three amazing. <laughs> Just put it up to up close to you now. Oh, um, I'd like to um, say it's great to be here and thank you for coming. Um, I'm an ex-teacher, very concerned about the power of the propaganda coming from the, both the dairy and the meat industry in Australia. So my question relates to a plant-based business here in Australia who's got the will, the money, the drive to do education on the web available to the teacher 
to give a balance in our education system to what is being presented to, presented to the children, especially by Dairy SA. I have been a couple of times to our Minister of Education who I live in this electorate, and he has agreed that the education system at the moment is unbalanced and that he would accept a plant-based website uh, that passes the Australian curriculum. So my question, Carol, is to you. Can you suggest any such firm? And by the way, sanitary has said no. The quick answer is no, nothing off the top of my head, but it's definitely something that should be done. Um, it's like in the US you have the Healthy Schools yeah. Coalition, don't you? It sounds like maybe that could be a, a model to, to look at. Maybe it's something I can get de your details and talk about later because it's something I have to think about a bit more because that's it's it's a, it's a good question. You know, and that's in the US, the Plant-Based Foods Association does that kind of, uh, you know, anti-propaganda kind of talk and gets words out. And just the non-profit sector, we love working with non-profits because a lot of times they're, you know, we're seen as capitalists and we have a skin in the game whereas a non-profit doesn't so it can be effective like uh, some of the, you know, Mercy for Animals and PETA and these guys are really pretty effective at getting um, information out there but the Plant-Based Foods Association has had some success in that. Sounds like a collaboration of some kind, which maybe you could sort of spearhead. Maybe we can give you some contacts and we'll have a think about it. Yeah, thank you in the front. Hey guys, um, I just wanted to come back to the vegan meats uh, and ask you about uh, stem cell meat. Uh, we hear a bit about it and how... Do you mean lab-grown? Lab-grown, yes. From okay, stem yeah. cells, yeah. Or clean meat, as they're calling it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know that it's at the moment costing half a million dollars to make a one burger patty, but um, you know, if that price drops enough, that that could become a competitor to plant-based meat. I'm just wondering. That's a great question. What you think about that? Seth, do you want to? Well, you know, I think it's going to reach. Uh, I think it'll be successful if it it's, goes back to again, taste is king, value is queen, everything else is marketing. So if they hit the taste. And if they hit the price, yeah, it's going to be successful. But again, it's a huge market out there, and I don't think that it's going to, you know, necessarily knock plant-based meats off the shelf. And personally, I'm pretty happy with just plant-based. I'm not the customer that they're going for, but there are people out there that are probably, you know, not going. They're going to be very slow, if ever, to adopt plant-based meats. And so this is speaking to that demographic and. I'm really all for it, you know, it's like we're in such a mess right now with animal agriculture, it's like stop, drop, and roll time, and anything we can do to get people off meat from an environmental standpoint, like, and the cruelty and suffering that are relieved from that, we've got to go for it, so uh, I'm pretty positive on it, even though I'm probably not the customer, obviously, and maybe a lot of you aren't either, but I think it's a good thing. Exactly what I said. This is um, this uh, the plant-based space will remain, um, as far as I'm concerned, and the and that that will start to eat into the meat industry more so. Like the number I was talking about before around mince sales in Australia, the mince the meat industry is so big. We sort of end up in a little bubble here, and we think that we're sort of uh, we've achieved a lot, and we have, but there's just so far to go. 
and a product like that um, and is, is the product that can do that. I love it too, like the people that go, they go, well, this will be like weird, will people eat it? And I'm like, hey, they've already sold the cruelest, most despotic <laughs> method of producing protein in the world, and what, people are going to go, oh no. I need E. coli with my meat or something. You know, I don't need clean meat. I need dirty meat. I need a bit of, I mean, I can't see it happening. I think if they knock off the texture and flavor, of course they'll. It's an buy. interesting one because they all went vegan 21 years ago for the animals. It was ethical. So, from an animal rights perspective, I've seen the criticism and I, I have mixed feelings about it because, from an animal rights perspective, yes, it doesn't address the fact that we exploit animals. So, I totally get that. Um, and at the moment, it's not a cruelty-free process. They're still using um, calf bladders. It's still pretty horrible. But there are companies like um, vegan companies that are work like Wild Earth that are working on uh, not doing it that way. But I think as both Seth and um, Kayla said, uh, you know, we're not the customers, and we're especially globally as well. You know, it's going to make a massive difference. I think I spoke to I spoke to someone who is in that space um, who's also uh, vegan. Um, and they were saying that it, it's actually going to be beneficial for the farmers because instead of having to have all this land to have the animals, they can just pay like a fee to license this cell-based clean meat. So again, I have mixed feelings from as an animal rights activist. I don't like it. I want the world to go vegan, of course. But from a reducing animal suffering and cruelty, which we all know is absolutely horrific, um, I, I think it's an, almost like a necessary evil in a, in a way, or it's something necessary that, that needs to happen. So, and they are bringing the cost down. I know you mentioned half a million. I think those costs have come down to about ten thousand now, which is quite a lot. So they they will. I think it's probably a few years time, but. Yeah, definitely on the way. But that's a great question. So it's a, it's a really important discussion. Anyone else got a question? Don't be shy. You've stunned them all into silence. How are we doing for time, our volunteers? We've got about 15 minutes. Okay, all right. So we might have got a set. Did you want to say something? Or I just, you know, when we were, one thing I didn't mention that um, I was just talking about um, before this conference was um, I think another real area that's going to be um, big in the coming years is vegan seafood and you know it's been sort of a an untapped field and more and more information is coming out on you know fish and what we're doing to overfish and the feelings of fish and the fish actually feel pain and they're sentient beings so I think that that's going to be an exploding um, industry, you know, that if somebody has a food science degree out there, is a good cook, you know, go in there and whip up some salmon or, um, you know, some other seafood. Because Especially in Australia, because in the US there's already a few, again, I wrote an article on Forbes about the rise of the vegan seafood, and there's some amazing companies in the US that are vegan tuna and all kinds of things and, but it's interesting when i interviewed them they were saying it's an area that it, it has take it's taking quite a while to develop because it's so new you know to have it like you said the texture that you might put the first batch out and it, it's not quite right so then you've got to kind of go back and tweak it before making their products um, available for sale but i think certainly that it's happening in america if it's happening in america then that means there's opportunities here because you've then got the local angle you know the locally made brand what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that, Kayla, about the whole, uh, oh, it's Australian made? Like, do retailers, um, like, do they, are they happy about that? Are they more likely to maybe take a brand on as that, as, as that being a sort of point of um, attraction for them? Yeah, Australian retailers definitely care about Australian made. Um, 
it does make the process easier sometimes with getting products in, but it does come down to flavour and, um, and the quality of the product in the end. The one benefit of manufacturing in Australia is also um, the Asian market. We're sort of a good hub for distributing into the Asian market, so there's, there's opportunities with your choosing to start to develop a product. It doesn't have to just be for the Australian market, it can be out for export. And there's a lot of subsidies available for that kind of product in Australia. I've got another hot tip. Tempeh. <laughs> who, who's, who likes tempeh here? You know, tempeh... It's healthier than tofu, sir. Well, it has a lot of advantages, you know, um, because you're eating the whole bean and not the milk of the bean, it's higher in fiber and higher in protein, and it's actually one of the wonder foods. It's, like, easy for the body to digest and assimilate tempeh, and it's under-marketed, I think, and we just... We're, uh, we've been making tempeh for now 39 years and we're just having to build bigger and bigger incubators. We can't keep up. It's a real um, happening thing and I think it's a place where somebody can start out small, like that's the route I did. I think that route is still out there. And the neat thing about tempeh is you can use all different beans and grains as a substrate. Like um, it's not just soya, although I love the soya the best. But I've had uh, a zuki bean tempeh in Maui that a friend of mine was making that I thought was unbelievable. Pinto bean, all these other beans, garbanzo, so there's that. And just um, finding out different ways you can flavor tempeh, different. And you're like very close to Indonesia here, uh, which is the motherland of tempeh. And I just think uh, that I, I've seen sales numbers that indicate that tempeh in even the supermarket channel here is a hot and happening category. So I would say make tempeh. It's a fun thing to make at home, by the way, too. And you can make the best tempeh you will ever eat. If you haven't had like fresh homemade tempeh, you haven't had tempeh. Um, you'll be able, it's one of those products you can make at home and it'll be a million times better than anything you'll buy in a store. So tempeh is something that I think we had this opportunity here, didn't we? We just set up a started a tempeh cooking class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Anyone got any questions? Oh, there's a couple at the back. Yes, there's one at the lady there, and then the gentleman behind. Hi. Um, I just want to sort of say I I am a different niche to maybe some people here, and I'm a zero waste vegan. So I wanted to ask you guys like whether you consider that niche in the products you create and perhaps you consider using more sustainable packaging because I currently do not buy packaged food because I'm avoiding plastic. But I miss my tofu and my tempeh. So what can you do for me? That's a great question. Seth, do you want to Well, you know, that's a great question. And, you know, from a manufacturer perspective, uh, uh, you know, we know that there's a market, but in order to serve it, like safety has to be the number one thing on our minds because you have to have uh, a, a clean, safe product. And a lot of times, like with our products, it has to be a barrier film, which means that it's not a recyclable um, well, in any way. So, but at the end of the day, you know, because you're making a vegan product, you're feeling like that is the trade-off for it, but it's it's a shame that there isn't more um, packaging that 
could be more sustainable and recyclable, but you should be making your own tempeh. That's what I'm saying. You'll love it. You'll, you'll really thank me later. <laughs> and, and tofu, also nice, fresh at home. So, it's interesting what you say. I've been working with a vegan brand here in Australia and um, doing some PR work to them. One of the things they were wanting to do is introduce compostable um, packaging. Um, and it looked as though it was all going to happen, it was going to be quite interesting. But then they found out that apparently this compostable packaging actually had lead or something in it. And so they didn't go down that route. So I think it's, probably, it's something that manufacturers um, are starting to. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's something the manufacturers, I think they're starting to have that conversation around it and so hopefully down the track uh, there will be either, like I say, recyclable, recycled or compostable or biodegradable. Um, but yeah, at the moment it is difficult because like Seth said, and, and as Kay will probably know, you've got, we've got these regulations in order to get the products into the retailers, you've got to tick these boxes. I feel as frustrated as you, you know, we open the packet and we're like, oh, come on. But, um, so I think, but I think as Seth said, and I think Kay said, it's about the customers, like you, Kay said, don't settle for poor quality products. So again, I think we can write to these, these um, uh, retailers and say, look, you know, we don't want this packaging. So I think as that conversation starts to get a bit bigger, hopefully we will see more sustainable packaging i certainly hope so that's a great question all right we're going to um, wrap up here can we please give a, a lovely round of applause to our so that's it for this episode of vegan business talk thank you so much for tuning in if you enjoyed the show i'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on itunes or any other platform you're listening on Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more free resources as well as details of how we can work together to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. And I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now. 